Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about my background at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, um, today we're covering a fascinating uh, work indeed. I have as my guest, uh, Dr. Banu Subramanyam, who's professor at the Department of Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, we will be speaking about her 2019 University of Washington Press publication, Holy Science, the Biopolitics of Hindu Nationalism. Uh, Banu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. So uh, someone just, you know, picked up your, your, your beautiful book uh, from somewhere and they say they see the word biopolitics. You know, what might that mean? So... Um, Biopolitics originally is a term that's credited to Michel Foucault, a French philosopher, and part of what he was trying to chronicle is the ways in which the body and specifically the idea of biology became central to all politics of the state. So when we think about birth rates, death rates, population, um, you know, immunity, uh, infection, these are all things the state does now. So it is talking about how, um, who can live and who can die. Um, you know, if you think of abortion politics or euthanasia, these are all things that the state um, controls. So it's trying to capture this, the, the ways in which biology as a field and our understanding of biology as a science has become so central to our imagination of life in the modern world. Before we dive into the workings of the book, could you say a bit about how uh, how you got to writing this book? Is there a backstory? How did this begin for you? So this began really, so I am trained as a ev- plant evolutionary biologist and living in the US, I you know very much faced the um, sort of the politics of evolution in terms of the Christian right in this country. And um, I grew up in post-colonial India very much that science and uh, technology was going to save us all, right? So very much in a post-enlightenment mode. Um, that, um, and so coming to the US where, you know, I was told that this was the, you know, this very modern liberal country, it was sort of really striking to see the politics, religious politics around evolution. And then over the last 20 years, I've been going back and forth to India and watching the transformation within India, um, where again, um, you know, religion has come front and center, but in a very different way. So I was really struck by the way um, uh, religious uh, nationalists in India, their vision of science and how they use science. And it was such a contrast to the US. So it was that comparative um, analysis that began the project, but then I got deeper into what was happening in India. And so that's where the book comes from. You've already opened the door for a tantalizing line of thought. Uh, The ways in which uh, this differs uh, in your research and your perspective in the US compared to India. Say a bit about that. 
So, um, so it, within the US context, secularism is understood as a separation of church and state. So um, versus in India, secularism is the support and flourishing of all religions. So it's, it's first of all, it's a very different role of, you know, the state plays with its respect to its relationship um, with religion. Um, and in a way, I think in both countries, even though we talk about democracy and secularism, it has really been striking now of how malleable the state is to, um, you know, questions of uh, religion and theocracies of um, various kinds. Um, it's also clear that in India, we can't talk, to me, you cannot talk about the Hindu fundamentalism because there is no fundamental text. So what is happening there is a political nationalism. Um, the impact and the ways in, it plays out is within the US um, where science as a topic becomes suspect. And um, so with respect to what we're seeing in COVID, it's like you cannot trust scientists on you know, um, vaccines or mask mandates. In India, it's the opposite. Science is embraced wholeheartedly by Hindu nationalists. So it's both uh, what Hindu nationalists do is on the one hand, embrace Western science as Hindu science and give it a backstory of the Vedic sciences. So modern science is an offshoot of the Vedic sciences. So they claim Western science. At the same time, they're of course also supporting um, various indigenous sciences. So in what is called, you know, the, the ministry of Ayush uh, supporting Ayurveda. And so I would consider myself as someone who, you know, really is against colonialism. Uh, I would, you know, of being anti-colonial and that we need to find ways of decolonizing science. So at the surface, it seemed like what was happening in India was an anti-colonial, decolonial perspective. The, but the more I dug in, it was really very a facile embrace of Western science without a critique of Western science, without the ways in which colonial science really underdeveloped colonized countries. And the move within um, the indigenous sciences and medicines of something like um, Ayurveda, it is about modernizing Ayurveda like it is a Western science, like Ayur genomics. When in fact, it seems like we have an opportunity um, to um, showcase a different epistemology. Ayurveda, homeopathy, which is not an Indian science, but is very much embraced in India. They have very different models of how the body works. And so this would be an opportunity to really highlight how science different different models and epistemologies of science and medicine can help us understand the human body in different ways, but that's not what's happening. So it was really interesting that what, there is this talk of anti-colonialism, but when you dig deep, I feel it is a recolonizing. There's, there's so many fascinating things about what you've just said um, 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 in no particular order. This idea that, what do you mean Hindu fundamentalism? You know, you know, we have to be conscious that Hinduism is a, is very much exactly. a construct. Um, there, it, it, it's an ecosystem of ideas, uh, disparate religious traditions, right? Like, so what are the fundamentals? Who yeah. reads the Vedas? Who knows what's in the Vedas? If in fact, those are the foundational texts. And so this idea of fundamentalism in the Hindu context is problematic. Um, um, that really well resonates. That really resonates. I'm just reflecting back, you know, when I'm hearing what you're saying. And of course, uh, what I said, what do I study? I study Sanskrit narrative. But for me, it's, I can taste ethos in text to me. 
And to me, uh, the brilliance of any mythologist or teacher or interpreter is just unpacking what's soaked into the text in a less overt, more covert, perhaps more unconscious way. This is zeitgeist. So mythic stories do this profoundly and they condition us generation after generation because they seep into our psychic tissues, as it were. And so, you know, it, it, it was, it, I have no evidence for this claim, but for me, it's palpable that um, 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 the invocation of uh, uh, science um, in the Indic context very much is a, look, we do science too. It's coming from a space of, we do science too. It's scientific. It's coming from a space of uh, desiring, wanting, needing to measure up to a certain bar, a certain level of prestige or, or authenticity. Yeah. Um, 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 a, a, another thing you said that's quite fascinating, it just so happens that the last podcast that I, that I recorded, I interviewed Anthony Cerulli of uh, Madison, Wisconsin. It was a work uh, called The Practice of Texts. And it was what he was pointing to was how Ayurveda in the colleges, in the Western inspired colleges in India, differed so greatly from how Ayurveda was practiced in the Gurukulas. Mm. Uh, this sort of indigenous ecosystem of ideas yeah. and transmission versus this, uh, let's take a clinical Western approach yeah. and put yeah. some Ayurvedic data into there. Yeah. And, and, and replace uh, certain texts with Ayurvedic texts. And then we have, you know, Ayurveda. And I just find what you say so fascinating. Um, what is the primary takeaway? What's the book about? What are you arguing in the book? So what I'm arguing in the book is, um, so part of it, it's an exploration of the ways in which um, biology um, engages Hindu nationalists. So I use five case studies in very, very different realms. Um, looking at the health sciences, looking at environmentalism, looking at Vastu Shastra, um, looking at the history of sexuality, um, and then looking at surrogacy. Um, and so, so, so some of it is just an exploration of how this is playing out and analysis in five very different realms in um, Indian society. So what I want people to take away is one is that this embrace of science by Hindu nationalists is a very problematic embrace because it is an embrace of a science that is deeply colonial in structure. And I think um, uh, one of the, you know, I think projects certainly has to be about thinking about what it means to embrace that. Second, part of what Hindu nationalists are doing is trying to make India a Hindu Rashtra. It's becoming increasingly clear that that is true. So they are trying to create a prehistory to India and the Vedic sciences are a very big part of it because it is about claiming a modern technologically and scientific pro proficient India. So even the prime minister who says the fact that we have Ganesha as a God suggests that there was a plastic surgeon at some in you know in um, in the prehistory that was able to stitch an elephant head on a body. So what interests me again and again is that they don't say these are gods. Gods can be anything and do anything, but they involve science and technology. They involve a plastic surgeon. They involve you know genetic sciences to talk the uh, to talk about the story of Karna. So it is really scientizing ancient mythology. And in doing that, it is not just about scientizing ancient mythology, they're trying to create a prehistory 
of an ancient civilization that was scientifically and technologically, you know, way ahead. And using that prehistory to claim India as a Hindu nation with that prehistory. And there's so much there. I mean, one of the things I love teaching about and teaching with is mythological stories. You know, every once in a while, I may get someone who's irked by the use of mythology to describe, you know, um, the, 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 how Ganesha got his head or the descent of Ganga and Shiva's, and Shiva's um, matted locks, etc. And something I come back to over and over again in, in, in the way in which I use them in more emic perspectives without being blind to empirical reality is that the historical veracity of this isn't the power of the story. The power exactly. of the story is in the story world, the exactly. profundity of the ideas and the themes and, and, and what's encoded in there. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's really interesting to take mythological stories and say, oh, these are all scientific, but what that bespeaks is, um, in my view, the fallacious uh, adoption of science as a metric for humanity and existence and arts and culture. Like science is the arbiter of the empirical world, but our experience of that world certainly cannot properly be measured, you know, scientifically. And so story, mythology, culture, art, I mean, there's so much more. It's trans-scientific in my view. Yes. And so I find it uh, ironically, ironically, it's um, it perhaps is... Um, What's the word? It's 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 a it's curtailing the religious power of of the myth yeah. by saying, oh, it's a plastic surgeon. That's why Ganapati has right, a head. Right. So there's a rich imaginative world. I feel I grew up in. I'm not sure where you grew up in. Um, that I think so. I'm so grateful for right of uh, the ways in which those stories still, you know, they, they have seem they seem to have unlimited imaginative power as we are trying to storytell. And I'm so grateful for that. And that you're absolutely right. It seems so reductive to base it on, you know, or oh, the scientists did science, this technologist produced this technology, rather than seeing it for the imaginative universe that mythology allows us. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention, and you also mentioned in the book that that you were deeply impacted by this rich story world. And stories are are yeah, they are the the pulse of any culture. And one of the things I like to do is show people the way in which our modern Western, especially North American, ethos comes from a mythos of um, exactly. Abrahamic Genesis and Exodus. Exactly. exactly. If you really pay attention to Genesis yeah. and Exodus, you understand so much about our world. It's staggering. Yeah. And so, of course, if you to, to understand a thing or two about all things Indic, looking to Indian mythology, the epics and the Puranas yeah. is a great place to start, however dizzying it might be. Um, it, 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 two sorts of uh, learners come to the School of Indian Wisdom, where I sort of dovetails uh, uh, wisdom transmissions and scholarship. One is, you know, the Western seeker who's quite used to or interested in a Western seeker, a Western seeker, someone from the West who is very interested in Indic thought practice. Others are diasporic Indians who, who, who knew these stories their whole life, knew these teachings their whole life, but never understood the power of them, yeah. right? Dismissed, as you say in your book, interestingly, dismissed them as, you know, silly artifacts of, yeah. of, of primitive peoples, much in the way that the early, early colonial scholars looked at the Puranas. I find that fascinating. Um, there's so much in the book and uh, each chapter probably could spawn its own book. So why don't you walk us through the different chapters? How's that? Sure. Um, I should have brought a copy of a book, the book with me, but okay. Um, but one, one, just I just want to follow up on one thing that you were saying, 
the Absolutely. provocation. Whatever, that, whatever comes to mind, feel free okay. to share. So the provocation that you know that you just um, the way you framed it that I think is so important is that Western science comes from its own mythological universe, its own philosophical and religious, you know, contexts that have shaped um, us. So to me, the provocation is what if we really developed a science drawn from, you know, the Hindu imagination, the Hindu philosophical universe. Um, that to me, that's such a tantalizing and provocative question. And I wish those were the questions we were talking about um, when we are talking about the rise of Hinduism. But what is happening is not a rise of Hinduism. It's a political nationalism. And so I really want to make that distinction which you implied in your, um, in your comments. Thank you. And so um, do you want to walk us through the chapters? Sure. So there are five case studies I um, um, discuss in the book. Um, one is looking at the rise of what I call developmental nationalism, which I think is very much um, the ways in which, um, you know, the current uh, configuration, Mr. Modi in particular, ran as chief minister of Gujarat and then uh, within the nation. So it's very much embracing science and technology as a model for the nation. And, but it is this very quirky formation. So I use the case of Vastu Shastra to talk about how many rich Indians are breaking down their houses and rebuilding it around this idea of, um, you know, where different parts of the house um, how energy flows within the house and what will bring good luck and bad luck and the ways in which politicians too um, renovate their homes or build stages. So there are many examples there about the ways in which this Vastu Shastra, the science of architecture and energy flow have shaped um, the Indian household, the Indian imagination, the uh, Indian ambition of whether you will get rich or whether you'll become poor. And so, so again, it's an example of how this ancient Vedic science is made into a modern science, a modern science that you need to pay money to buy. It's never free um, that you pay money to, um, you know, to redo your house and what you do before an exam. Um, the second case is um, looking at Article 377. And here, you know, looking back into Indian mythological stories that I think are so plural, pluralistic about sexuality, I would say um, the imagination and the possibilities, even on temple walls, are um, so rich um, and so not puritanical. But yet, what we are seeing now in India, where we've seen colonial era laws continue on in the Indian imagination. And then I trace um, the history of the, um, the freedom movement and how these questions of masculinity and a virile masculinity uh, and a homosociality are so central um, to the RSS, you know, which um, is one of the parent organiza organizations that sh shapes the BJP. And so it's looking at you know, the, those intertwined histories. Um, the third is looking at uh, environmental politics in India, particularly looking at the uh, building of the Setu Samudram Bridge or the attempt at the building of a Setu Samudram Bridge, a bridge between Sri Lanka and India to help um, uh, ships navigate so they don't have to go all around Sri Lanka. And again, tracking how science and religion cohere in those debates. 
of Hindu nationalists who say the bill shouldn't be built because this is the ancient bridge of Adam. So there, is, there are some um, shoals at the bottom of it that Hindu nationalists claim this was Rama's bridge uh, and so should not be um, um, destroyed and environmentalists who wanted the environment preserved. But the ways in which each of the religious nationalists and environmentalists draw rhetoric and theories from each other to shore up their political arguments. Um, and then talking you know, very broadly about the idea of sacred groves, the ways in which, again, environmentalism in India is very rooted in a particular kind of religious histories and religious understandings. But always remembering that when we talk about majority Hinduism, it is always inflected by caste. It is always inflected by gender. There are some sacred spaces women cannot go into, that people of lower caste cannot go into. So we also need to be mindful of those histories of Hinduism as the, in the ways in which it gets practiced. I think the fourth chapter is looking at, um, I think it's looking at the sort of uh, the rise of the genome project um, and the story of the Aryan invasion and going through genetic studies of it. And again, this is something that you will see again and again in the history of science is when there is a key question that is engaging a public, every time there's a new scientific technology, that question gets revisited again. And so now we do it through genes. At one time, we did it through blood or proteins. Um, and then it's also looking with the rise of IU genomics. So looking at genomics and the ways in which uh, genomic technology plays into um, the vision of Hindu nationalists. And the last chapter is looking at um, the history of population. At one time, India was, you know, and I, I would say is, um, you know, at the heart of, um, you know, the population, overpopulation rhetoric and population uh, reduction technology, and how um, now with the rise of uh, gestational surrogacy, how India for a while became this place where, you know, um, Indians, Indian diaspora and foreign nationals came to India to hire gestational um, surrogates. The ways in which, um, and these I talk about ethnographies by uh, Amrita Pandey and Aditya Bharatwaj, who chronicle how religion is so central to these narratives of how um, gestational surrogacy and gestational surrogate mothers themselves use these uh, religious vocabulary to understand what they're doing. And then of course, now it has been banned by in India. Uh, in, in India. And again, it is this, this very, um, I would say paternalistic move of wanting to protect women. When in fact, often what happens when things get banned is they move underground. And so women are even more vulnerable have no way, you know, ways of, um, you know, regulating or recourse. And this is what feminists always push for, right? That if you really want to protect women, what you do is you regulate it. You make sure they know their rights. You make sure they, you know, properly compensated. What if things don't work? Of developing a framework that actually protects them. But I, I think it's abolished at the moment. So that's the broad um, range of it. Um, and the other thing is, you know, because I'm so interested in stories, and to me, one of the things that got me into this field of feminist science and technology studies is the understanding that science also tells stories, right? It's telling the story about why the flower blooms, of why 
the body is structured the way we are, how evolution acts. And so running through it are um, uh, sort of these, what I would call speculative fiction, um, trying to imagine each of these stories in the long arc of time. So much fascinating data there. Um, um, the, 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 I've said more times than I can count in different teaching contexts that storytelling is not just for narrative, that the best, uh, the best and most famous physicists in the world are the ones who can tell a story about the data such that people right. can understand what the heck they're talking about, whether they're specialist colleagues or the interested public. Storytelling is, is, storytelling is um, um, the human communication and yep. it's how we make sense of the world. Right? It's just how we make sense of everything, including um, in the scientific domain. Um, uh, so say a bit more about your take on story and the importance of story. Like what, why is, um, maybe even draw in a little bit about it from your conclusion. Uh, your conclusion is called Avatars for Dreamers, uh, Narratives, Seductive Embrace. So say a bit about the power of story in your work and your findings. So... Um... I, I think in part stories are so enga engaging for me, I feel, because I grew up in India and I grew up in a world of stories. And what was wonderful about stories in India is that they would tell you a story the first day. They would tell you the story again the second day, but now there would be new characters or it would move off into a different place. So they could tell you the same story. They could tell you the Ramayana for the you know, rest of the year and new characters came in. So it's never linear storytelling. It's a kind of, it's a cycle. It's, it's an endless loop with added complications and um, embellishments and new characters and new subplots. And so the, the, there's something about that, that I've always loved. And I think storytelling, I also find very engaging, um, like you as someone who teaches, of how much more my students retain, of how, rather than just you know, putting it all as a set of facts, weaving it into a story allows us to remember. So I think it's also a very important pedagogical tool. And so to me, uh, but I'm not, but I, I know there are people who suggest that stories also um, um, delude us into thinking we are telling the truth. There's sometimes the structures of stories force us to tell certain kinds of narratives and there can be danger in that too. And I, I, you know, I think I'm um, cognizant of that. So coming from feminist science and technology studies, the idea that, you know, science is, is telling a story. So for the longest time, I would say biology has been trying to tell a story of why white people are superior to other people or men are superior to women or straight people are superior to others. People will do experiments after experiments and experiments and then suddenly one shows significant results and then it's on the front pages, right? So there's something the, of the idea of human difference that seems so deeply implicated in the scientific project it will not go away, you know, never mind um, how many results show otherwise. So I, was, I sort of feel very committed to idea of stories. And in particular, I'm always interested in how one might take the same data and tell different kinds of stories. So in part, what dates, to me, scientific data does, it constrains the stories you can tell because the data points you in certain directions, but that same data is open to other kinds of interpretations. And this is one of the things I often have my students do is to say, what other stories can you tell? Okay, so they took this plant and they took this plant and they did this and these are the results they found. 
What are the stories you can tell? I think it makes us all better scientists, better interpreters, better uh, empiricists to, to ask those questions all the time rather than fall back on the most obvious story. And the most obvious story is usually a hegemonic story because of particular historical or cultural times we grow up in. That, that, that seems the obvious way to go. Who might most benefit from reading your book? What sorts of people or scholars or whatnot? I, I would say everybody, honestly. Um, um, I think it, I feel it opens a different kind of window into um, India and what is happening in India than usually gets told because I think biology and biopolitics is a very important part of that story. And science is a very important part of that story. Um, I think uh, people interested in science and the history of science in recognizing that science in India did not progress like science in the West. That in almost every part of the world, science works within local contexts. Um, you know, anti-colonialists fought science in different kinds of ways and molded science into a very different enterprise. I think we need to understand that. So anyone who's interested in science and history of science, people who are interested in storytelling more broadly, um, of, you know, of understanding the power of that and the ways in which storytellers get used by different groups of people um, in the story that I'm telling to create very different visions of the world and visions of justice. If you could wave a wand based on your research, what would change? Meaning if I could create the world the way I wanted to? Maybe not from the very beginning, but from <laughs> maybe, maybe now moving forward, if you could wave a wand based on this yeah. research, what change might you like to see in the fabric of society or culture, or humanity or India or whatever? I don't want to limit the question. So I think at the heart of it, I think I would love to see more um, critical thinking, more critical questioning. I feel we are increasingly moving into these camps that will not question anything. Um, that I find so very dangerous um, at the moment. Um, and so I would like us to ask questions of who is benefiting um, and the ways in which I feel, um, you know, different groups in different parts of the world become scapegoats for particular kinds of problems. And this happens not only with people, but also with with, with everything. So I, for example, work on invasive species of plants. So the ways in which foreigners and the idea of the foreign isn't only about humans, but also about foreign plants and animals. So I think I wish we could create those kinds of public spaces for discussion and at the heart of it, point out the ways in which power is functioning, the ways in which fascist thinking is proliferating across the world. Um, so you, you seem to have a, an intriguing um, combination of skills and interests in terms of your training uh, that you seem to have brought together uh, somehow in, in what I would imagine to be a fulfilling way. Um, what are you working on now? What's next? So I'm currently working on a book on decolonizing botany. Um, and so it's going back to some of the um, ideas in this book of trying to articulate 
what that might look like, what, uh, you know, what might an anti-colonial, decolonial botany look like. Um, so for example, you know, going back to what we were talking about, how I grew, my understanding of plants growing up was woven into, you know, from all these mythological stories and plants and animals are so central to Indian mythological stories. And then from that, when you go to school, suddenly now you have to learn all these Latin names in rote, right? And, uh, you know, names that made no sense. Um, and so really so much of the sciences and botany in particular was what I call an alienation from the world around. So all those stories were reduced to this plant is called this, this plant is called that. And in, uh, in discussing, you know, what an impoverished vision that is. And in thinking about how um, our models of reproduction, of biogeography of plants, of plant taxonomy, all come from a botany that really was developed to aid colonialism as an extractive project, right? Colonialism was about how do we take resources from different parts of the world? How do we get spices? And um, how do we control those trades? So botany and some of the other sciences are very central to that colonial project. So, and even though we claim we are post-colonial now, a lot of those histories remain in the theories of botany. And so part of what I'm doing is trying to trace those and to think about what it might mean to decolonize botany. It seems to me that, um that every civilization, uh, even in, in secular societies, um, that uh, has an unconscious that is made up of and fueled by, powered by story. And it seems to me that whether or not one is a believer or not, whatever religious tradition one is from, whether one is a, an atheist, a secularist in the West, that this profound narrative um, that is established really foundational to Abrahamic religion, this narrative of a powerful masculine entity that creates yeah. nature, creates humanity, and then says, hey, guys, this is for you for your use. This is to have dominion over and use and for, for your welfare. A charitable read would be you know, quite father, fatherly, right? This is, I've made this for you so you can use it. And, and, and you, their first man, go and name the plants and animals. Right. This is profound, and, and this is unconscious. This, this is in the unconscious scaffolding of our civilization of how to navigate nature. Yes? yes. That's very different from narratives wherein, um, 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 in the Devi Mahatma, for example, that I'm currently, well, it's one of my primary objects of research, but I'm currently teaching a course on it at um, yogic studies, among other places. But um, it has this vision where, you know, there's a problem. So the gods of heaven go to summon the great Devi, the great goddess, and the, the, the gods of heaven all clamber up to the highest mountain peak. And they all say, you know, Ya Devi Sarvabhuteshu. They're all, they're all praising the, the goddess on high, beyond, beyond, who lives in all the critters, all the creatures, mm. who lives in all creatures as a number of, 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 of virtues, as, as literally a hunger, thirst, birth. This is a very, very different understanding, Indeed. and there are many, many different understandings in, in in the in the in the constellation of traditions that we collectively call Hinduism. There are various various different Indeed. understandings as evidenced through um, philosophical and mythological works. But uh, I keep coming back to this idea. Uh, my, my 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 brain broke open in 2010 when I really understood the extent to which our civilization is in the tent of Abraham. 
no matter how hard we try. This is, and then it occurred to me, it's, it has to be in some tent. It has to be somewhere. It has to sit somewhere. Right. Right. Like, like, like right. The, the scientific uh, worldview has to sit somewhere into some matrix of meaning making, right. whatever that looks like. But that matrix Enough. could also be a pluralistic one. So it could exactly. sit in many places. And that's sort exactly. of where I would like us to go. Exactly. Uh, beautiful. Is there anything else about the work, um, 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 your current or future work that you'd like to touch on today? No, I think you've covered a lot of ground. Oh, good. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thank you for appearing on the podcast. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Banu Subramaniam, uh, who's a um, professor of women, uh, a professor at the Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We've been talking about her 2019 University of Washington Press publication, Holy Science, the Biopolitics of Hindu Nationalism. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep well, and keep contemplating the role of biopolitics in your life and beyond. Take care.